Hello. Happy Friday to you. It's Chappie, your British butler. And today we have a very, very special edition of Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. It's a celebration, a memoriam of the James Bond movies. It's not going to be your typical uh, homage to the Bond movies or 60s sort of pastiches, 70s. Over the last 50 years, 50 years we've had the James Bond movies. But we're going to be delving into my own memories. Um, why I see the Bond movies as a sort of little milestone, a cornerstone, a nugget in each of our lives, a gold nugget in each of our lives that uh, really bring back tremendous memories and uh, get the loins stirring in so many different ways. So my first experience of a James Bond movie was very, very seminal. 1983. Huge year. I mean, we came very, very close to uh, a nuclear war exchange with uh, Russia and America. Look into that. That's a very interesting story. We'll have to talk about, talk about it another day. So right in the height of the Cold War, when uh, Russia didn't have a leader for a little while. Their leader was in hospital, he was sick, he was dying, and the military was in control. So it was quite an interesting time. I mean, as a child, you didn't suspect this, you didn't realize this, the whole world was ticking by. But, I mean, 1983 was a seminal moment in terms of uh, world history, peace, Reagan, before Gorbachev. And also, it had an amazing litany of movies that year so i think one of the first movies i saw was at the movie theater it was return of the jedi one of the weaker earliest star wars movies and again people will uh probably try to decapitate me in that way also et and i haven't seen et since i was very impressed with et as a child and i remember crying but that wasn't the movie that really stirred my senses and sort of shaped my life in terms of my interests, my sense of humor to a degree, the sort of movies I would like 44 years later. That movie, believe it or not, and I don't think many people would admit to this, probably because of the title of the movie more than anything else but the movie that really got me interested in cinema spy capers general nonsense escapism was octopussy octopussy now when they came up with the uh, movie name the star of the movie the bond girl maud adams uh couldn't say it she was embarrassed to say it as was one of the co-stars Christina Wabel they didn't want to say it and uh, the TV audiences in America the movie theatre audience in America were very unsure if um, that could be used as a title very suggestive Bond's always been a little bit suggestive though pushing the boundaries in terms of violence 
uh, innuendo, uh, film noir, all of that. But Octopussy was a very silly caper. I loved it. You had an avuncular, aging Roger Moore, very charming, uh, made me uh, interested in tuxedos and safari suits. I mean, what seven-year-old boy would want to wear a tuxedo or a safari suit? I didn't want to wear a Superman outfit. I didn't want to have that huge S under my clothes and glasses as Clark Kent and remove everything. I wanted to be James Bond. I wanted to be Roger Moore. I wanted to carve out my right eyebrow and, 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 and get that raised quizzically. How could I do that? But I absolutely loved it. From the beginning of the movie and that tremendous scene with that mini Acrostar jet flying from a military base somewhere maybe in Cuba to the military base exploding at the end of the pre-titles credit sequence and then Bond escaping landing and there's an old man on some sort of rocking chair at a gas station and Bond trundles in out of gas in this little mini Acrostar jet and he says to the bearded guy who could have been ZZ Top actually fill her up please as I said this isn't a traditional review or celebration of the Bond movie series because no time to die is out the new Daniel Craig movie the last Daniel Craig movie uh, in his sequence of five films. Longest serving James Bond over the course since 2006. I mean, there hasn't been that many, there's been five. I mean, over the course of the same period, uh, and probably a little bit less time, by about two years, Roger Moore made seven Bond movies. So, They'd be more to say, though. Um, very different style of Bond movies between those two longest-serving Bonds. Maybe, uh, maybe back to the sort of classical portrayal of Sean Connery in some ways, Craig, or maybe even more brutal than Connery. But you know what? I think in homage, and a lot of homage today. A homage, homage. You have to. Roll, you know, to get your throat going this morning. And the only way I can do that is with tea. Um, I have no shirt on today. And I do have a pair of very blue swimming trunks. But instead of coming out of the Caribbean Sea, um, I've come out of my closet, you know, folded some sweaters up and put them on the side here, uh, ready to wear for today, and made myself a nice cuppa. So... In, uh, in memoriam, in celebration of Daniel Craig's last movie, I am wearing the blue swimming trunks. Uh, well, not so much of a six pack, more of a rather heavy keg, um, not, not containing anything. A heavy keg and a small nip of scotch. A little bit early for a vodka martini. And I know that Craig was recounting uh, during the course of 
the last couple of weeks. He's told the story before. When he heard the news that he was going to be made Bond, Barbara Broccoli uh, phoned him and he did Whole Foods at the time. I mean, I, I do hope he wasn't getting, like, lentil soup or something. I hope he was, like, buying a nice, like, huge filet mignon or something like that. But he decided, once he got the news, he went to get some vermouth, some vodka, shaker, and uh, the martini glass. And he went home and mixed himself some martinis and then went to a bar and drunk another three or four martinis. Now, if he's had like five or six martinis, you know what? Um, yeah, the lentil soup wouldn't have, wouldn't have cut it. He would have needed a steak and mash uh, to, uh, to combat uh, the hangover the next morning. But I've liked, uh, I've really liked Daniel Craig's incarnation as Bond. Um, it's not quite my style. Uh, as I said uh, at the top of the program, and controversially, my favourite Bond is indeed Roger Moore. And that may be because it was my first Bond, as I said, Octopussy. But I've enjoyed the Daniel Craig movies. I even did like Spectre. Uh, I really like Spectre, actually. I preferred it to Quantum of Solace. But it's been iconic. I rewatched uh, Casino Royale and the cinematography on that movie and the acting. Um, Eva Green was absolutely fabulous as Vesper. And uh, Daniel Craig, although I don't think he looks like James Bond, he has that sort of brutalism about him that uh, Ian Fleming wrote about. Um, and the movies, as a sequence, and no other Bond movie has followed on from one to the next to the next to the next. I've rather liked that. That's been a... Uh, that's been... something that's been quite a special sort of break away from the norm when it comes to Bond. But I haven't seen No Time to Die yet, so there's no spoilers. I mean, I sort of have a guess of what may happen. But, you know, reading that there's echoes of On Her Majesty's Secret Service uh, playing through the Bond theme, uh, through the movie, is rather lovely. And that, we'll go on to that later. We'll go on to Lazenby's um, portrayal as Bond in that one movie a little bit later in, in the podcast. But anything that echoes that is a magnificent movie. I mean, I think if you're preparing yourself for the new movie, No Time to Die, I think you should watch the Craig movies, and I think you should watch On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I think at that point, you are ready for the new Bond movie. So let's talk a little bit about the seminal Bond, Sean Connery. So Connery's interesting, and um, a lot of his, everybody sees him as James Bond, because he was the first Bond. And he had a, had a presence about him. He had a grace in his movement for a large man that was like a stalking cat. Charming, brutal, handsome. And in many people's view, the epitome of James Bond. I mean, Ian Fleming didn't want him as Bond. 
Ian Fleming wanted David Niven. Now, Niven at that time was older, established Hollywood star, a typical sort of English gentleman, uh, charming, sort of Roger Moorish in, in, in many ways. In fact, Roger uh, and uh, David Niven had a long-lasting friendship. Um, I mean, Niven's fantastic. I mean, if you, if you ever want to read a fantastic autobiography, The Moon is a Balloon is, is marvellous. And I remember, I think, when Niven hosted the Oscars one time, and a streaker ran on with no clothes on. And uh, he got to the microphone and... What a terrible fuss to make about such a small thing. Lovely. Love David Niven. But not really Bond. Although Fleming saw him as Bond, he wasn't that brutalistic, uh, sort of misogynist um, type, of, uh, type of fellow. That would, you know, that's a fit for a 1960s Bond. I mean, 60s Bond these days is sort of outdated in this uh, more sensitive, aware, in some cases people say woke society. But Connery was, was discovered, believe it or not, from a Disney movie. It was an American fantasy adventure Darby O'Gill and the Little People. And we're not talking about like Little People as a knick-knack, the, uh, the little person in uh, Man with a Golden Gun. Also uh, on Fantasy Island. Hey, boss! But this was a, a Disney production, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, that Connery starred in. And I think he got himself noticed as the... Uh, as a potential for the James Bond character when the movies are going to be released in 1962. And, I mean, one of the pieces was written by A.H. Wyler in the New York Times, described Connery as merely tall, dark and handsome and called the film overpoweringly charming concoction of standard Gaelic tales, fantasy and romance. And that was the movie that Saltzman and Broccoli, the two producers of Bond, that was the movie that got Connery the part. And then it was a whirlwind. From the first movie, Doctor No. It's iconic. I mean, it's been recreated across the Austin Powers movies. To the marvellous Russia with Love with Robert Shaw in that train fight on the Orient Express. That you would, I mean, if you've seen it, It'll stick in your mind forever. One of the most magnificent fights on a iconic mode of transportation. And then Goldfinger, with all its flair, its pizzazz, its 60s attitude, was a wondrous introduction to James Bond. And I think for anybody who's sort of my age, sort of see the Bond movies out of sequence. But I thought Roger Moore was the first movie because I didn't know that Connery was before because I saw the Moore movies because they were coming out at the movie theatres. Um, you know, and I used the VHS, all of the other movies. You know, with old 1980s advertising in between. I remember one, I recorded Goldfinger and the, and the gentleman, I think it was on there, uh, Anglia TV beforehand had painted his hand gold and held up his finger 
I remember that. I think the first time I saw golfing on the television. But I mean, it was like the the cinematography, the outfits, the uh, the beautiful ladies. I mean, even Sean Connery in that blue toweling. Now, who would get away? What man would get away with wearing blue toweling? A blue toweling sort of onesie. Well, it wasn't a onesie, it was a halfsie. And he wore that over at the pool in Miami Beach when he was uh, observing Goldfinger. Now, I mean, I do want to try maybe next summer. It's a little bit cold now, you know. Everything would freeze and shrink at this point if I had a uh, toweling blue, uh, a baby blue toweling onesie on. But next year at the pool, I am going to try wearing the baby blue toweling onesie, and I don't think I'll get away with it. And it did have a belt round it that clipped. So iconic fashions, and you had a brooding Connery over those early Bond movies, where he was fantastic. Thunderball in the Bahamas. I know I went to the Bahamas many years ago. I wanted to go <clears throat> to the British Colonial Hotel in Nassau because of Thunderball. I mean, you know, you had the sharks, you had the beautiful um, beaches, the Caribbean Sea, the Bahama, Bahamian atmosphere. I mean, for a young man under 10, it was magical, mystique. And then you only live twice, where Blofeld's underground lair in the volcano was absolutely superb. And based again, Austin Powers got it completely right. You had the sharks with the frigging laser beams. You had uh, Blofeld with the scar. And I know the scarring and, and facial disfigurement has been a big news story over the over the last few days as well rightly or wrongly the bond Connery started looking bored in that movie he started looking bored and had a rather odd hairpiece and what I didn't know is that Connery had a hairpiece through nearly all of the bond movies but today we're celebrating Bond and on the Spotify Musical Emporium Butler edition we are having Bond music across the traditional themes, a bit of David Arnold's Shaken Not Stirred album as well, which is absolutely marvellous. But nothing in terms of soundtrack and music is stirring as the brass and Shirley Bassey and Goldfinger. Sean Connery in Japan in 1967 where the paparazzi, the fandom was going absolutely nuts. And Connery was getting bored of playing of the role. He was, bored of, he was worried about getting typecast at that point in 1967. And a rather sort of celebratory, memorable, but slightly hammy James Bond, uh, You Only Live Twice, where Bond dressed up as a Japanese fellow he had some sort of basic plastic surgery and a wig tried to make him look Japanese and failed miserably I mean you've got the hairiest man in the world having a bath but never build nest and bear tree 
I mean, that's one of my favourite lines. But he looked, he looked bored. He was sort of beginning to dial in the performance. Nothing like Diamonds Are Forever. But, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful score. Wonderful movie. The volcano. Um, Donald Pleasance was an excellent Blofeld. But you could tell that Connery's time was coming to an end. He wanted to do other movies. He didn't want to be known as James Bond forever. How do you replace Connery? And this is what the producers had to face in 1967, 68, as they were trying to convince him to stay. They were trying to persuade him, coerce Connery to, to stay on in the lead role. And he didn't want to. I mean, he wanted the money. But he was sick to the back teeth of the role. Almost hated Bond. I don't think he did a Daniel Craig. It wasn't like he wanted to slash his wrist or anything like that. But he had enough of it. So what do the producers do? Who do they find? Who are they looking for? I mean, people screen tested. It was a, it was an incredibly difficult job trying to find a replacement to Connery. I mean, how can you replace Sean Connery? You can't. There's one man though, a cocky, confident lad from Australia. George Lazenby. He had hardly any acting experience. He was a basic actor in television commercials, Fry's Chocolate in Australia. But he had the look. He had the confidence. He had the balls. He had the bravado. And I highly recommend on Hulu, across many channels, you've got Becoming Bond, which is a marvellous, marvellous documentary about Lazenby becoming Bond. Because basically, he had no acting experience. I mean, nor did really, I mean, Connery had a bit more than Lazenby. But I think he got a call from a friend of his and said, you need to audition for Bond. And I mean, Lazenby thought, I'm never going to become Bond. But he managed to go to Savile Row, get a, a, a suit cut like Connery. He went to Connery's barber and got a haircut like Sean Connery. And his friend somehow managed to get him an audition with Harry Saltzman, the producer. One of the producers, Brooklyn Saltzman. And... Lazenby got into the audition and, I mean, Saltzman didn't really ask him any questions about his sort of curriculum vitae, his career. But he had a little bit of a strut about him. I mean, he didn't walk like Bond, but he had the confident strut of an Australian guy. An urchin. And, I mean, by the look of him, he sold Saltzman. And Broccoli. And then he talked to Peter Hunt, the producer, and told him that he didn't have any acting experience. And Hunt was amused by this. 
He said, well, you got past Saltzman. You got past Broccoli. I'm going to make you Bond, but you're going to have to let me help you. And this interloper, this Aussie larrikin, became James Bond in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And in my mind, one of the most... I, it's, it's one of the most iconic of all the Bond movies. And sticks in the mind. I mean, the cinematography. Diana Rigg, tremendous Bond girl. Telly Savalas, a sort of American gangster type of Blofeld. It was a wondrous movie. 1969 was a very important year in history. I mean, you'd had 68 with Luther King, Bobby Kennedy getting shot. The riots all across America. That sort of change in scope from the 1960s into the 1970s. And you had a new bristling Bond who knew, nobody knew of in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I mean, it stuck so closely to the Fleming novel. Like, if you listen or read, listen to an audio version or read the book itself, it's very, very similar. And I think that's what makes it special. Because a lot of the other movies were um, manipulated by scriptwriters. But On Imagine Secret Service has a purity to it. you got Blofeld trying to launch some sort of biological warfare across the whole of the world. Very poignant at the moment. And he was doing this through beautiful women who had allergies who he had at his clinic. And he's using these women to let loose these vials of botulism and biological uh, biological warfare agents. Very, uh, you know, it rings true as we look at today's world and harkens to the new movie No Time to Die, from what I believe. As I said, I haven't seen it as of yet. But I mean, from the very beginning in the Aston Martin DBS driving along the beach when he meets Diana Rigg. Teresa Vicenze on the beach and she has that attitude with Bond and you have that little bit of essence of humour would never happen to the other fella that's what Lazenby says at the beginning and that's how the movie starts and you know at that point it's a new chapter as I said I cannot recommend on a Majesty's Secret Service enough for you, the Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese listener. It's a marvellous movie. And the Alpine scenes uh, in Pete's Gloria are absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it's the only James Bond movie set around Christmas time. So if you like a, like a sort of snowy, Christmassy type of movie, then this is the one. Set by a beautiful John Barry soundtrack. Um... And the chemistry between uh, Lazenby and Diana Rigg is pretty good. Although I believe Diana Rigg 
apparently ate garlic and Lazenby hated garlic. But I highly recommend uh, watching that movie before, uh, before you indulge in No Time to Die. It's a beautiful, sad, poignant movie that uh, every Bond fan should watch. And the sweeping snowscapes, the alpine snowscapes, stick in one's mind. Along with that sort of 1960s vibe that's almost a pastiche these days. Superb stuff though. Connery did come back in 1971's Diamonds Forever. And he looked a little bit more rotund. I mean, if anybody, a slightly larger man, has aspirations to be Bond, then look, watch Diamonds Forever. I mean, Connery's wake fluctuates through that movie. And I believe his toupee does shift as well. Now, if anybody can dial in a performance at Sean Connery, and he dialed in his performance in Diamonds Are Forever. I wouldn't say it's one of the best movies, but it's a fantastic Las Vegas romp from the early 70s. I mean, I highly recommend it. It's amusing. It's a little bit more lighthearted. It's a precursor to the Roger Moore films. And, I mean, you can tell Connery was just being paid a lot of money to turn up, be James Bond, be himself, ad-lib a little bit, and star in some crazy caper with an incredibly camp Charles Gray's Blofeld. But, you know what? I, I, there's none of the Bond movies that I dislike. But this is just uh, absolutely delicious camptastic. And, as I said, it was an introduction to my favourite debonair, charming, tongue-in-cheek Roger Moore that came up next. Give me more, 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 more. Love the Roger Moore movies. I mean, certainly not politically correct. Some of them haven't aged very well between um, some of the subject matter and some of the outfits. But you know what? I would gladly walk around Aspen, Colorado in a safari suit. Maybe not in the wintertime. But uh, I, would, I, would, I would don the safari suit if necessary. Probably a little bit of a silk ascot underneath. So, Roger Moore's incarnation as Bond was marvellous. Live and Let Die, I mean, Daniel Craig's talked about it. Sam Mendes, uh, producer of Skyfall and Spectre, has talked about it. I mean, it had a huge influence on the series. And some great villain. I mean, Teehee, Kananga. Wonderful villains. Um, in the in the sort of canon of Bond history. And you had that sort of tarot uh, element running through it with Jane Seymour. Where Bond decides that he's going to buy 1,500 cards and all of them says love as he slips it into the pack and she picks one out. And it's a lover's card. And him and... Jane Seymour, Solitaire, that are going to become lovers. I mean, it was very, very cheesy. 
Um, and then you had George Martin's uh, soundtrack running through it. Tremendous, like the uh, New Orleans funeral. That sort of jazz explosion of a typical Louisiana funeral where Bond goes to. And then the Caribbean scenes as well. And that, I mean, certainly got me into the black turtleneck. And realised that you could wear a black turtleneck with moves. Roger did allow you that. He did give you that hope that a man with moves could wear a black turtleneck and get away with it. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, before the movie even felt, I mean, they said to Moore, you have to lose weight. You have to cut your hair. You can't be persuaders. You can't be that sort of rootin' tootin' uh, type of playboy going around Monaco that he was in The Persuaders. They wanted him to slim down, cut his hair, be more sleek. And he sort of carries it off in this tongue-in-cheek, debonair, charming, sophisticated, taking the mickey. Everything was a little bit eyebrow-raised, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, there's a joke coming. I'm sending up Bond. I sort of love that. I love the essence of the self-deprecating. I mean, Live and Let Die, I think my sister's favourite. And so many figures, so much, so many um, notable characters with Baron Samadhi, this voodoo sort of prince of death at the end, laughing on the back of the train like you can't kill Samadhi. Death will always come to haunt you. Live and Let Die was definitely a masterpiece. And then you had Man with a Golden Gun. It could have been a brilliant movie, but wasn't. Um, Christopher Lee as the cold-hearted assassin Scaramanga with a third nipple. I mean, come on. I mean, that's the best uh, that's the best Halloween costume ever. Open neck shirt with a third nipple. Done. Maybe a golden pistol of some sort. That's all you need. But uh, after Live and Let Die, it went, de- went downhill slightly with Man with a Golden Gun. And again, people will, uh, will argue about that. Beautiful setting in Phuket. Um, Christopher Lee as Scaramanga was amazing. Moore was awesome as always and I can't believe I just said awesome I never use the word awesome I'm not going to edit it out though because I need to keep a record of me just saying that he was marvellous this is marvellous darling more was marvellous in Man with a Golden Gun but it, it, it just wasn't the greatest uh, greatest bomb movie ever and it took three years off I mean you think three years these days between the, the gap between Spectre and uh, no time did I six years, but three years was the gap between Man with a Golden Gun and one of my absolute favorites, The Spy Who Loved Me, which was the best movie of the Bond era, and in many people's uh, minds, the best Bond movie ever. Nobody does does it, does it better than, than Bond, and in Roger Moore in this case. The Spy Loved Me was tremendous. A lovely, lovely film. I mean, starting off with a ski chase. And having the gumption to wear a banana yellow ski suit. I mean, he's in some Alpine Lodge. Um, you know, in the altogether. 
with some uh, lovely lass. And out of his watch comes a, a coded message. And it's like, the, you know, remember the days when you used to stamp out your name on one of these little, uh, little clicker items? You know, one letter at a time. And then put your name and stick it in a, on your shoes so you knew that the shoes belonged to Chappie. Well, this, this little clicker tape thing came out of Bond's watch. Asking him to report back. And the, and the lady said, Oh my God, James. Where are you going? I need you. So does England. And off he goes on the skis. In the banana suit. Being chased to the greatest score. Bond 77 chase. As he trundles and tumbles. Down the ski slope. And over the edge of the ravine, over the edge of the mountain, is this the end of Bond? And then the Union Jack cascades from his back in the form of a parachute. And everybody cheers. The spy who loved me has made me fearful of elevators. Every time I go in an elevator, I manspread. Sounds awful, doesn't it? Boris Johnson does it when he sits down. He raises the legs apart, wide apart. And I do the same in an elevator because I have a tremendous fear of the elevator bottom opening up and me tumbling down a, a, a slide into a shark infested waters below. Always in an elevator, always have that fear. I worked in the Sears Tower in Chicago. 84s up, I had my legs wide apart just for the fear of, uh, I mean, firstly, maybe doing the splits, but secondly, tumbling to my death in a shark infested tank that's what the spy who loved me did to it and this was in a this was an absolute gem of a movie barbara bark who married to ringo ringo star from the beatles is a beautiful confident addition to the uh to the whole bond series as, as a bond girl as major massive um, you had the unfortunate Michael Bellington, who screen tested as Bond, having another bit part and dying. Um, you had uh, the villain Strongberg. Wasn't the, wasn't the greatest villain, but then you had the superb, devious, menacing Jaws with the metal teeth. I mean, everybody thought he might be British with that type of, you know, replacing your teeth with metal. He could have bad teeth. He could be British. No, he wasn't. He's American. And nearly seven foot tall with the metal teeth. He was a, a wonderful henchman and antagonist for Bond. And I mean, I never forget, you know, Roger Moore always trying to punch jaws in the mouth and getting a ringing for his hands where he just punched somebody with a metal jaw. Bond 77, Spy You Love Me. One of my favorite additions from the soundtrack to the scenery to, uh, you know, the sort of underwater submarine Stromberg's lair. He wanted the whole of civilization to be based underwater. I mean, it's a sort of a real sort of Cold war type of uh, feeling to it. And I mean, Bond was back at that point. Bond was back in 77. Moore was now James Bond. 
and it had a marvellous feeling to it. As I said at the top of the show, Bond basically leaves uh, nuggets through your life, milestones through your life. Uh, it's almost like a Hansel and Gretel type of feeling. You're, you're putting breadcrumbs down of memories, times in your life where you've seen a Bond movie. Oh, yeah, I remember that year. This was happening in my life because it's been going on for so long. You know, like 1983, I talked about Octopussy, remembering where I was, remembering that summer, watching all those fantastic movies. Um, and the Bond movies do that. Especially somebody, when you're brought up with a Bond, mine was Roger Moore, and you see some of the movies. You've got For Your Eyes Only, uh, where, you know, he came down to earth, versus Moonraker, which is a marvellous sort of space caper. You've got Star Wars, and then Bond goes into space with the shuttles in Moonraker. And I mean... The whole budget was pushed pushed out for this movie. Jaws returns in a slightly more sort of <laughs> slightly camper type of uh, feel this time around in Moonraker. Um, but you've got Paris Chateaus in the California desert. You've got Bond in Rio. I mean, and I, I said this before in the podcast. I decided one day on a, on a first date uh, with, uh, uh, with my ex, I decided I'd wear like a, a cream linen suit with a brown shirt, chocolate brown shirt, and a chocolate brown pocket square, huge shoulder pads. And this is what I decided to wear my first date. Because this is what Roger Moore wore when he got off the Concorde in... 1979's Moonraker to some sort of beautiful Brazilian uh, type of music Bond arriving in Rio Hugo Drax in Moonraker was trying to create the perfect race of beautiful people on a spaceship going to this space station and then the world would be destroyed and only beautiful people would survive that was the essence of Moonraker um, you've got Bond wrestling with a python um, in the Amazonian rainforest. I mean, how long does a safari suit take to dry? Because, I mean, he wrestled with a python. I always wondered that, you know. I wonder if, like, a safari suit would be better for a sweaty person because he'd dry out quicker. Just things that cross Chappie's mind during his movie. But, I mean, Moonraker was, uh, again, camptastic, Roger Moore, tongue-in-cheek, Bond in space, with pythons, with a guy with metal teeth who discern, decides to turn good. I mean, what more can you ask for? For your eyes only, brought Bond back down to earth. With a more realistic type of Ian Fleming type of Bond. With Roger Moore, more serious. Um, it's sort of a different essence to the other Moore films before. Set in Greece, Sardinia. Um, you had Topple from Fiddle on the Roof was in the movie. He wasn't singing, but I mean, he he played a good antagonist. Julian Glover played uh, played the Bond villain. He also auditioned to J for James Bond as well. Believe it or not, so many people have auditioned to James Bond. I wonder, have you auditioned to be James Bond? Maybe you have. Um, 
but it was a it was a more sort of down to earth affair. And then you had somebody impersonating Margaret Thatcher at the end, um, which was quite interesting. Talking to a parrot. I mean, you're not on acid, people. You've got Margaret Thatcher talking to a parrot, and we're not talking about a cabinet or anything like this. She's actually talking to a parrot, and that was the uh, end of Pure Eyes Only. And uh, nobody knew at that point if Roger Moore was going to come back and uh, take on the part of Bond one final time. Well, he did come back, and he was in, as I said, my favourite, Octopussy. And this was... I mean, Bond was dressed as a clown, uh, basically taking apart a nuclear weapon on a, at a circus. Um, he was in India on a beautiful fantasy island run by a woman called Octopussy, where women were in charge in this uh, lake in Udapur in India. Uh, he was on tuk-tuks, throwing rupees around for everybody. He was, he was also in a crocodile, going across the uh, monsoon uh, lake into Udapur, the lake palace to meet Octopussy. And then you had Kamal Khan, wonderful Ujjadan. If you like Ujjadan, you should watch Octopussy, but you should also watch Under Glass, a Columbo episode where he plays a wonderful chef villain. He has this charming menace about him, Ujjadan, French actor. And I love the line. Mr. Bond is indeed a very rare breed, soon to become extinct. I mean, marvellous line. I talked about Octopussy before, so we won't cover it too heavily. Um, but at that point, um, Roger Moore decided, I think, to have a facelift in 1983. Was he going to play Bond anymore? He wasn't going to play Bond in Octopussy. You had, uh, uh, you had John Gavin. You had many people sort of auditioning, screen testing for Bond. Because he kept having to be persuaded to come back again. And they always gave him more money. I tell you, Roger Moore was the supreme negotiator. So throughout today's podcast on James Bond, celebrating uh, the new uh, last Daniel Craig movie and looking back at uh, Bond as well and how Bond's influenced. So, I mean, as always with this podcast, we sort of decide, well, how are we going to do this? You know, are we going to cover this in one episode? And, you know, you probably realize this. Most of uh, Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese is off script. This has been completely off script. This is me talking about Bond from memory. I have a good memory. Um, but from experience, from reading, I mean, I I should be on Mastermind for James Bond. This without, but this is a completely off uh, off script. Uh, and uh, you probably realize that. But we came to the last Roger Moore movie. And I remember at the time, I wanted a Wolf of PPK gun. And uh, you could buy it uh, uh, at toy stores, the uh, James Bond gun from View to a Kill. And you had it with Bond was on the Eiffel Tower. And uh, my parents bought me the, the Wolf of PPK replica gun with Roger Moore and the Eiffel Tower behind. And uh, had a holster as well that I could put under my, uh, my faux sort of fake uh, tuxedo dinner jacket. Absolutely lovely. But at that point, Roger Moore did look very old. I mean, he'd had the facelift. Um, so his skin was pristine, very tightly, tightly pulled together there, Roger. 
Um, but I mean, look at it now. I think Daniel Craig may look older than Roger Moore did in 1985 with View to a Kill. Uh, but it was uh, it was an interesting movie. It's, it's, it, it was an amusing movie, uh, as all the Roger Moore movies were. You had <coughs> Grace Jones uh, playing a uh, a marvelous uh, marvelous villainess. You had Christopher Walken playing Zorin, who was uh, basically um, put together in a Nazi lab, and uh, they created. Uh, uh, an Aryan Bond villain. Um, I mean, Walken's always tremendous in all the movies. Uh, you had the, the very lovely Tanya Roberts, who sadly died recently, um, who, I mean, I think is underrated as a Bond girl, definitely. Um, and she had a sort of sultry presence that she first introduced in Charlie's Angels and, and you saw in uh, View to a Kill as well. I mean, it was, again, humorous, uh, romp at times. Some of it was brutal. I mean, Roger Moore hated the machine gunning of Zorin to the people in the mine. That was sort of brutal for Roger Moore movies. And then it had the most brilliant of soundtracks with View to a Kill and the 80s wonder that were Duran Duran. So at this point in the podcast, we're going to close it for today. We're going to continue with our sort of almost like a Tolstoy war and peace look at Bond. Um, We're going to cover Timothy Dalton next time. We're going to cover Pierce Brosnan, my mother's favorite. I mean, I think my my mother, never let Pierce Brosnan go near my mother because she would like feed him up Yorkshire pudding, stews. She would never let him escape, basically. I mean, she's, he's her milk tray man. <clears throat> and then we have Daniel Craig. We'll talk about the Daniel Craig movies. But um, as I said, I thought, well, let's do one James Bond edition of uh, Keep Coming Call of Duty. Well, you know what? Let's do two. Let's indulge with two editions of this uh, most uh, superb film series. And we're going to finish off with a a little James Bond poem. And uh, as I said, you can listen across all the platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, iHeartRadio. We have a James Bond musical edition. There's a, some different mixes there. You've got a Blondie version of For Your Eyes Only. You've got some, uh, a version of uh, All Time Hive with Pulp from the David Arnold collection. So there's a lot going on in the musical emporium if you like your James Bond, if you like your spy music. Um... But coming up next, a Bond poem. This was an excerpt of the poem uh, from Skyfall. Lord Alfred Tennyson, Ulysses. We are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are, one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, to strive to seek, to find, and not to yield. So that closes the Bond special podcast, the first edition. We move into the 80s and 90s and 2000s, noughties. Does Bond get naughtier? Well, that's for next time. But thank you for listening to the podcast. And until tomorrow, Chappie will be back. Cheerio.